Thank you for checking out our podcast here at Eastern Assembly of God Church in Baltimore, Maryland. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us at www.easternassembly.org. Church, thank you so much for tuning in today. Listen, thank you for uh, just having these services at your home, at your job, in your car, wherever you are. As we finish this series, part three of Mirrors and Microscopes, I believe that God has something for all of us in Honestly, today's message is one that I believe is going to go beyond just our church. It's more or less a message to the church, the church of Jesus Christ. So if you could help us, if you know anyone that is a Bible-believing Christian, uh, I believe this is a message they can benefit from. So you can help us by sharing this message with them. And you're going to see as we go through this message exactly what I mean by that. So before we get into today's message, I want to start us off with just a word of prayer and prepare our hearts for whatever it is that God has for us. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you're doing. We thank you, Lord God, for the work that you've done in the first two weeks of this series, and we look forward to the culmination of this, God. And I believe, as we've been saying for two weeks, that we individually and as a church would be positioned to receive what you're going to pour out, that we believe in the last days you're going to pour your spirit out on all flesh. And because we've allowed you into the deepest parts of who we are, you will be able to flow in us and through us. So we thank you, Lord God, for the work you're going to do as we complete this series today. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you guys again for tuning in. If you missed part one or two, I encourage you to go back and watch those at some point. Uh, Some of what we're going to talk about today is going to pull sections away from part one and two of this. So kind of a very quick, brief recap. The idea of calling the series Mirrors and Microscopes is this. It's very simple. I believe that we've gotten to a place where a lot of believers have begun taking the Word of God and use it as a microscope to zero in on the flaws and issues in other people's lives instead of allowing it to be a mirror to reflect the work that God still needs to do in our lives. None of us are perfect. We all still have work that is to be done in us. So more or less, the first two weeks are essentially an an issue or a challenge to you individually, to me individually, to all of us, to check our hearts, to allow God to search our hearts, and if there's any offensive or sinful way in us, to allow him to move that out. It's very much been focused on the individual, been focusing on uh, allowing the word of God to be internalized before we try to externalize it, because there is a lot of stuff that God has to do on the inside of all of us, and that work won't be complete until we're standing before him in heaven. But one thing that I don't want to get lost in the first two weeks of this series and that we're going to focus on today is that when you get saved, it is not just about you and Jesus. You heard that right. It is not just about you and Jesus. I think that we've gotten to a place where for too long we've created this kind of individualistic faith. And somebody might say, yeah, let me believe what I want to believe. You might even hear a lot of people say, especially during this time, that I don't need to be a part of a church But I want to make it very clear today that you, when you accept Jesus, you are born into a family. You are accepted into the family of God. It's not just about you and God. There's an entire family now that you are a part of. And I want to lay this out for you as we go through a couple different scriptures here. The first one is Ephesians 1.5. It says, he predestined us, he being God, he predestined us for adoption to sonship, 
through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So when you accept Jesus, you have been adopted from your life of sin into the family of God. This happens instantaneously as soon as you accept Jesus. As we go on to 2 Corinthians 6.18, it says, God is speaking here. He says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Again, here we go with this language of family, this idea of God as father. We have been adopted in as sons and daughters, but it doesn't stop there. As we go to Romans 8, 16, it says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's what? God's children. If you're watching today, I want you to just type that in there. I am God's child. Romans 8, 16, we are God's children. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. I could go on and on and on, but the Bible in both the Old Testament and New Testament is filled with this familial language. It's not just about you. It's not just, hey, I said the prayer, I accepted Jesus, now let me go do whatever I want to do. When you accept Jesus, there is an instantaneous transfer that happens that you are now grafted into the family of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What exactly does it mean to be a part of the family of God? Now, not that long ago before COVID started, we, uh, Asa was in kindergarten at school. And he comes home from school one day for a week straight. He's begging and begging and begging Victoria and I, can, can I have a, a play date with one of my friends? And so eventually I meet this friend's parents and I have a conversation with them and I ask them, hey, Asa is begging to have a play date. Is it okay with you guys? Finally, they agree. So this kid comes over to our house. He's also a kindergarten student and they're playing. They're going crazy, tearing the house apart. And finally it kind of gets to the part of the night. Every parent knows this. It gets to the point in the night where it's like, okay, I'm going to turn on a show so you guys can chill out because I need some sanity right now. And so it got to that point in the night. And so I look at this kid and I say, hey, what's your favorite TV show? Like, what do you want to watch right now? And what do you, you just want to relax. I want to turn on a show for you. What's your favorite TV show? And this kindergarten kid looks me square in the face, being as dead serious as he can be. He says, The Walking Dead. I said, oh, no, no, no. There's no kindergarten child in my home that's going to be watching The Walking Dead. I don't want Asa watching that. And here's the reality. In, in his house, that was okay. But the second that you come into my house, there are certain rules or standards that we go by. And Asa isn't going to be watching that because in our house, there are certain rules. And so just like each house has different rules, each family has different rules and structures that they live by. The same is true for the family of God, that when you are adopted into the family of God, you are now submitting to the lordship of Jesus. And what that means is that essentially you are submitting yourself to the house rules of what it means to be in the family of God. And so whether you realize it or not, that's exactly what this whole thing is about. You are adopted into a family. There are rules of the house that we would simply call righteousness. The Bible's very clear on a bunch of different things that pertain to how a follower of Jesus is meant to live. Now, one of the benefits to being a part of a family is that it's not just about you. 
When you start to sway, we're called to, to hold each other accountable, and that's the entire purpose of today's message. Listen, we talked in week one about different types of judgments that we're not supposed to do. So we want to avoid bad judgments. We want to avoid the judgments we addressed in week one. In week two, we, want, we talked kind of about positioning ourselves in a place of compassion, now, as we go through, we're going to see how these two messages line up with this idea of accountability that we're going to talk about it right now. Because if we go back to week one, if we were to look at Matthew 7 that we talked about in week one, it did not say, take the plank out of your own eye and then leave the speck in your brother's. No, it said, you take the plank out of your own eye first so that you can help your brother remove the plank out of the, the speck out of their own eye. You see, as we go through Scripture, we can see in Proverbs 27 where it tells us that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And I want you to have kind of this picture or this imagery as we go through the rest of this message because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I don't have two pieces of iron, but what I do have here is this knife that Victoria and I have in our house. And I have this sharpener here. And if I want to sharpen this knife, I have to bring the knife close enough to the sharpener to be sharpened. This is what begins to happen when somebody says, I'm a Christian, but just let me do me. I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be a part of a faith community. They, they, they're out here just wielding themselves, expecting to be sharpened. But the problem is that you can't be sharpened in isolation. As I want to go through this process of sharpening here, there has to be proximity and intentionality. Proximity meaning closeness or nearness. I have to bring this knife close enough to the sharpener to be sharpened. And that's essentially what we do as the body of Christ. When we are in the body of Christ, we are being close enough with other believers to be sharpened, to be effective. That's the goal here of the sharpening is, as I sharpen this knife, I am now making this knife more effective. In our relationships with each other as believers, as we sharpen each other, the goal should be to make each other more effective. Now, the key I want you to notice from this illustration here is faith grows best in community. Nobody was called to live their faith on their own because meanwhile, you would be like this knife wielding itself in the air and faith grows best in community because sharpening requires proximity and intentionality as iron sharpens iron one man sharpens another. That's the entire goal of this. So we have a responsibility of accountability, of fellow believers holding each other accountable, that we would let each other know, hey, when you became a part of this family, there are rules in this house. There is a standard of righteousness that you are agreeing to live according to, and we want to help hold each other accountable to that. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about a story in Scripture where we see this happening and we see accountability happening, but what we see in this story here, you're going to see exactly how it ties in. I want to talk about 2 Samuel chapter 12, and, and I'm going to read through this story. Some of the verses will be on the screen, but I'm going to try to paraphrase it because it's a long story here. But as we go through this, we're going to see exactly how accountability happens in Scripture, but also how we can take it and apply it to our lives. If you're not familiar, in 2 Samuel 12, this is a story of Nathan and David, and it starts out like this. It says, and God sent Nathan to David. This is a very key point of this message. And God sent Nathan to David. Now, at this point, it's important to know that David had already committed one of the greatest sins he would ever commit. This was after the time that he slept with Bathsheba, that he got her pregnant and had her husband killed. Meanwhile, he goes back to living life like normal. 
And I believe that after David committed this great sin, that the spirit of God was speaking to David internally and trying to get his attention to reveal this area of sin that he needed to repent from. But the problem was David was too fixated on the position he was in. He was too fixated on the responsibilities that he had. He was too fixated on all the things happening around him that he was not sensitive enough to urge what the spirit was saying to him and to take it to heart. And so what God does, because God is gracious, God sent Nathan to David. Because God's intention is for all of us to be restored, God sent Nathan to David. Because David wasn't listening, God made another way. That's the beauty of accountability. I believe all of us are held accountable by the Spirit of God. But sometimes we need somebody else to come along and hold the mirror up for us to remind us of the standard that we said we were going to live to. As we look through this story here, Nathan said to David, he tells him this story. He said there were two men in the same city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a huge flock of sheep, herds of cattle. The poor man had nothing but one little female lamb. And then he brought it up and he raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It was a member of their family. It ate off of his plate and it drank from his cup. It slept in his bed. It was like a daughter to him. One day, this traveler dropped in on the rich man, and he was too stingy to take one of his own animals from his herd or his flocks to make a meal for his visitors. So he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared a meal and set it before his guests. David exploded in anger. David exploded in anger after he heard the story that Nathan told him of a rich man and a poor man. This rich man took this man's one lamb and prepared it before him instead of taking of his abundance and preparing it for him. And David exploded in anger. He said, as surely as God lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this ought to be lynched. He must repay for the lamb four times over for the crime of his stinginess. And as the story continues, we see Nathan confronting David, saying, you are that man. The story that I told you, that I crafted to tell you, that's you. He put together this entire story to paint the picture for David of the exact sort of hypocrisy that David was living in. David, you are living in this sin and you're not even noticing it. So he tells him this story. You are that man. That is a hard truth. That's a hard truth. And as we go through, we see here, you are that man, said Nathan. And here's what the God, the God of Israel has to say to you. I made you king over Israel. Again, he's reminding David of his relationship with God. I freed you from the fist of Saul. I gave you your mother's daughter and other wives to have and to hold. I gave you both Israel and Judah. And if it hasn't been enough, I would have gladly given you so much more. So then why would you have treated the word of God with brazen contempt? doing this great evil. You murdered Uriah the Hittite, and then you took his wife as yours. Worse than that, you killed him with an Ammonite sword. And now because you treated God with such contempt, and you took Uriah the Hittite's wife from him, killing him and murdering him, it will continually plague your family. This is what God is speaking. Remember, I will make trouble for you and your family. I will take your wives right out in front of you. I will give, you, give some of them to your neighbor and I will go to bed with them openly. You did a great deed in secret. I'm doing mine with the whole country watching. And then this is the important part as we go through here. David responds like this. He says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against God. Listen, Nathan just told David some hard 
stuff. You have sinned. You are the one living in this hypocrisy. You are the one that is this. You are this man. But not only that, these are the consequences for that sin. These are the consequences for your inconsistency. These are the consequences of your hypocrisy. Nathan is not shying away from the truth that David needs to hear. And this is a very difficult truth to explain. Here's the thing. David developed these blind spots in his life where he was doing life like normal and he had lost sight of the wrong that he did, but not only the wrong that he did, but how it would grieve the heart of God. And not only how it would grieve the heart of God, but how God would now punish him for the act that he committed. David was missing all of this. But God, because he's gracious, sent Nathan to David to remind him of the wrong that he had committed. This is the key to know, though. Blind spots develop when there's a lack of confession. Blind spots will develop in our own lives, like that of David, when there is a lack of confession. I firmly believe this. I firmly believe that accountability will always be something that is needed in church. But I believe that if we were better at confessing our sins to one another, as Scripture calls us to do, that there wouldn't be as much of a need for accountability. Because as you openly confess, it keeps you in this position with the mirror pointed back to you, revealing those parts of yourselves. It keeps you in a position of humility. It keeps you in a place where you are acknowledged acknowledging constantly your need for God and you're giving him permission and other people permission to hold you accountable. So you will begin to develop blind spots in your life if you don't have people in your life that you can openly confess into. If you don't have people in your life that you can openly confess your struggles to, you will begin to develop these blind spots where you have areas and things in your life that are grieving the heart of God, but you're missing it because you don't have other people around you to help hold the mirror up to you to reveal to you the areas that you're not seeing. James tells us this. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. When we repent, we repent to God, but there is power in interpersonal confession when we have other people that we can link arms with that can remind us of the standard that we are called to live to and that help us live according to that. That confession keeps us in a position of humility to avoid getting to the place where David got to. But if you get there, if someone around you gets there, accountability is such an important aspect to help us stay on track with who God's called us to be and how he's called us to live, to remind us the rules of the house, the standard of righteousness, because when, all, when one of us falls, we all fall. That's the key here. It's not just about you. We have a responsibility as a family of God to help each other. So as we go through this, We see Nathan holding up this mirror to David, and I believe that we're called to do that for each other. We know based on week one in Matthew 7 that it's not saying we're devoid of making all judgment ever, that we're never to judge. We do know that we have to first examine ourselves. We have to remove the plank from our own eye before we can help somebody else take the speck out of their own. We see this self-reflection needing to happen, allowing God to search us. We see this happening. But then in week two, we see that not only are we to do that, but then when it is time to confront someone, when it is time to call sin, sin like Jesus did, that we are to do it out of a spirit of compassion. Today, I want to continue the conversation of, okay, when it is time to have some of these difficult conversations, how do we have them? Because you can say the right thing the wrong way. 
You can say the right thing the wrong way. Listen, it's like Victoria and I, if we're married and we have a, a big fight, we have this argument, and then when the argument is over, you know, she's trying to make up, she's apologized because she's the one that's wrong. It's not me. Um, and so she apologizes, and then I'm still a little upset or I'm frustrated. And so as I walk away, I'm like, oh, I love you. Love you. That love you doesn't really mean a whole lot. But if I were to sit down next to her and I were to take her hand and say, I love you. I love you. I'm saying the same words, but they're going to be received completely different. I'm saying the same thing, but my presentation of the words matter. And I would wager to say that how we say things will determine whether or not they're received. And I think that that's the important part of accountability is that you can't just come out here and say whatever you want in a reckless way because my goal is to help you. Again, the purpose of sharpening is to make you effective, not to dull you, not to put you down, but I want to be effective in communicating truth to you. So how you speak matters. How you approach people matters. We looked last week and scripture tells us to speak the truth in love. Love is a door that truth walks through. If I want to speak to someone and I'm shouting truth at them, listen, your truth won't be heard if your love is not felt. If you want to just speak to somebody to correct them, if you are eager to correct somebody, your heart is probably already in the wrong place. And so as we approach people, the purpose of today's message is how do we now have these conversations in an effective manner? How do we approach each other? How do we have accountability with one another, specifically as believers? How do we do this in a way that will be effective and help each of us be sharpened? So as we go through this, I want to give us three specific areas for effective accountability. Three areas of effective accountability. That's the purpose of today's message. The first part of effective accountability is being reflective. Reflective. If I am going to approach you, if I'm going to approach someone and there's something I'm seeing in their life that is not measuring up to the standard that they are called to live by, my first and foremost position should be that of being reflective. As we go back to the beginning of this story with David and Nathan, it says, and God sent Nathan to David. My first concern is, okay, am I approaching this person because I want to set them straight? Or do I feel like God is wanting to send me to this individual to remind them of the standard they're called to live up to? Have you even prayed about the conversation that you're wanting to have? Or are you having it based off of emotion? Or are you having it because you feel like this is right? God sent Nathan to David. And this is key because this was a hard conversation that Nathan had with David. If Nathan was anybody else and God did not send him, he could have said the same thing, but David wouldn't have received it, and it would have sent David continually on a tailspin of sin without receiving the conviction that God was trying to speak to him because someone stepped out of line. God sent Nathan to David. Is God sending you? It's the first question to ask. Is God sending you? The second part of being reflective goes back to week one. Have you actually taken the time to remove the plank from your own eye so that you can help your brother remove the speck from their own? Have you taken the time to do that? Or are there glaring hypocrisies in your life that as you approach the individual, your truth will be hindered because as you speak to them, it's not going to get through because they see the inconsistency in your life. I am not telling you that perfection is required for accountability, but humility is. If I'm willing to approach people and I'm in a position constantly of knowing that, listen, I need God just as much today as I did the day I got saved, as we mentioned last week. 
If that's my heart, if that's my intention, listen, I don't have to be perfect to hold somebody else accountable, but they better sense some genuine humility in me. As, as I speak to them, listen, I'm not saying, hey, I'm any better than you because I need God just as much as you do. But I want to have this conversation out of a reflective place. Again, if you are eager to confront somebody, your heart's probably already in the wrong place. As we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Scripture, there is no fruit of the Spirit where you will be gifted with the ability to call people out. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's love and joy and peace. And listen, it's quite the opposite of this eagerness, this willingness to call people out. God has not empowered anyone to be the person to call other people out. I would wager to say that in accountability, it's probably going to be rare that God is specifically showing you people or issues or things to speak to. Because first and foremost, conviction first comes through the spirit. And then if the individual is not willing to listen, because God is gracious, he may send you. But first and foremost, if you get that in your spirit, hey, I need to speak to this person. Reflect on, is God sending you? Secondly, reflect on, have you taken time to remove the plank from your own eye so that you can effectively help remove the speck from your brother's eye? The second part I want to look at is this. The second key for effective accountability is being relational. Being relational. I talked about this idea of family, of being born into the family of God. Now listen, uh, for those of you that don't know, Pastor Kelsey basically lives with us. She basically lives at our house. She's there all the time. Our, our kids are like her kids. And listen, our kids love her. So this week, as we were just kind of going throughout the week, Asa was up here at the office, and I had to go run a couple errands. And so he was hanging out with her in her office, and he was having a little bit of a rough day. He wasn't listening, and he's just kind of doing his own thing and a little bit whiny. And so it got to the point where he got in trouble, and, and Kelsey had to take a time out for a minute. And so he had to stop everything he was doing. He just had to sit still for a minute. But Kelsey was able to tell Asa, hey, you need to chill out and I need you to sit down for a minute. She was able to correct him because she has that type of relationship with him. Now, if I'm walking through Walmart or Target and Joe, the produce guy, tries to correct my child as I'm walking through the store and tries telling my kid he needs to sit and time out, me and Joe are going to have a little talk. Me and Joe are going to have a problem because Joe doesn't have the response. He doesn't have the relationship to speak to my child that way. He doesn't have the relationship to correct that person. Now, again, you can speak the truth and Joe could even be right. Hey, your kid's acting a fool. He absolutely is. But guess what? You're not going to be the one to tell him. It needs to come from somebody that has a relationship with him and actually has the relational equity to enforce correction, to speak to the wrong that he's doing and help him turn his ways. But it's not going to be you. Sometimes I think that's what happens. We're quick to hold other people accountable that we don't have relationship with. And this is where some of the judgmental labels can come from. Oh, Christians are just judgmental because we often try to hold people accountable that we don't have relationship with. If you don't personally know this individual, if the only time that you're going to talk to them in person is when you want to correct them, you're not the one that's meant to correct them. And this is important here, and I believe that's true in this story here with Nathan and David, because here's the key. Nathan and David had a relationship. It's documented throughout scriptures. This wasn't even the first time that Nathan corrected David. There was a point in scripture where David is referring to, listen, man, the ark, the ark is just sitting in this tent outside, and here I am in this huge cedar lodge. I want to build, build a house for the ark. And then eventually 
and comes back to him and corrects him. And he says, no, the Lord said he will build a house for the ark. You don't have to. So this story here that we're looking at isn't even the first time that Nathan has had this sort of encounter with David. But the relationship that they had was important because if some random person approached David and they said the exact same words that Nathan said to him, David could have had that individual killed. He would have been turned off by the individual because there was no relationship there. There was no understanding that this person has his best interest at heart. And so David very likely could have had this individual killed. So do you even have a relationship with the individual that you're wanting to correct? If not, I would start there. Because sometimes what happens is we might see something on the surface that might give you a cause for concern. But the reality is there's so much below that that you don't see. When you don't have a relationship, you don't always see the full picture. You don't know the full story. So to try to correct or hold someone accountable based on the 2% of the information that you know isn't always the best way to do it. In fact, you can push the person the opposite way when we speak and correct outside of relationship. Now, for me, this is one thing that's really important. I have people in my life that I have specifically asked, hey, I, I want you to hold me accountable. Some of you guys right now, you don't really have anyone in your life that holds you accountable. And part of it for me that I had to realize is, listen, I had to give people permission to hold me accountable. I had to sit down with friends and have specific conversations and tell them, I am asking you to hold me accountable. One of my friends is a youth pastor in New Jersey. His name is Jamal. We talk every other Thursday. I've known him for over a decade, probably 14, 15 years now. And I had a conversation with him. I said, hey, I need somebody. I need multiple people that can tell me when I'm out of line. I need somebody that can tell me when I say or do something that doesn't line up with what I should be living to. I need somebody that isn't afraid to tell me hard things when I need to hear it. I had to go out of my way and intentionally pursue these relationships because I know that I need it. And so if you're sitting here watching this today and you say, you know what, I don't have these relationships where somebody holds me accountable. It's time to intentionally seek them out. Who are the people that know you best? That's the place I would start. Not just somebody that knows you best, but someone else that is also a part of this family of God because they have to be able to hold you to the same standard they're wanting to live up to. If the people that know you best, but they are not a part of this family, they're not going to hold you to the same standard because they are not submitted to the house rules. And so here's the question that I want to ask more than anything else today. If you don't hear anything else that I say, the question I want to ask you is this. Who do you have in your life that can tell you when you're wrong and you'll actually listen instead of getting offended? That's not a rhetorical question. I want you to right now think about that and ask yourself that question. Who do you have in your life that can tell you when you're wrong and you'll actually listen instead of getting offended? The reality is a lot of us don't have an answer to that question. And if that's the case, then we become like this knife wielding itself in the air, not being sharpened because we don't have proximity and intentionality in our relationships. We haven't let people into those areas of our lives. So again, I ask you, who do you have in your life that can tell you you're wrong and you'll actually listen instead of getting offended? 
As we finish up this message and go through the rest of it, I want to encourage you that if you don't have someone in your life like that, this church is a great place to find one, whether you're a part of women's ministry or men's ministry, or if you're plugged into an e-group, these sort of smaller group settings are, are for the purpose of accountability, iron sharpening iron, that there would be a couple relationships you can find in these settings where you give people permission to hold you accountable. So who do you have? If you don't have any, it's time to find one. The last part I want to talk about, the last key of effective accountability is restorative. Restorative. The goal of any confrontation, the goal of any accountability conversation or any confrontation should always be to restore. The goal should always be to restore. James goes on to tell us this in chapter 5. It says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The purpose here is James is saying, hey, as we try to confront people, as we try to get them to see their sin, the goal should be to help them to be restored. We even see this as we look back at the story with Nathan and David. As David says, I have sinned against God. Because of the confrontation that Nathan had with David, it pushed David to a confession of sin, which led to restoration of his life. So as you confront people, you've got to hit pause and ask yourself, are you seeking to restore them or do you just want to correct them? Are you seeking to edify them, to build them up? Are you seeking to help them be better or are you just wanting to reveal a problem because it makes you feel better about yourself? Sometimes we're quick to want to hold other people accountable. And if I could be honest, I've been in church settings where this idea of accountability has been used to abuse people. It's been used to put other people down. It's been used to make other people submit to unrealistic standards that the individual in, in a position of accountability isn't willing to submit to themselves. The goal of any accountability relationship is that it goes two ways and that it is always restorative because as we talked about last week, the heart of God is always restoration. When you get it wrong, if God is gracious enough to send somebody else your way to help reveal to you the error of your ways, the goal is that God's giving you an opportunity to acknowledge the wrong and to correct course, to repent and confess. Again, as we talked about earlier, I believe that if we had more confession, we would need less correction. I believe that if we got about confessing things to one another, we would have to have less and less of these conversations. They'll always be necessary, but how much will be dependent on your openness and your vulnerability. As we go through this, I want to remind you the three points here for effective accountability. First of all, reflective. Secondly, it's relational. Thirdly, it's restorative. As we approach people in these conversations, these hard, difficult conversations, and it needs to happen here first. Again, we are in the family of God, submitted to the house rules, submitted to righteousness that comes from God. As we hold each other accountable, this is what it should look like. And this ties together weeks one and week two that first and foremost, I'm reflecting on my life and I am removing the plank. In, in week two, we looked at being compassionate as Jesus' approach, and that's even relational do you know the person? Do you have their best interest in mind? Is your true intention to sharpen them? Lastly, is it restorative? The Apostle Paul goes on to write time and time again throughout the New Testament about unity in the church. 
Anytime that wrongdoing is revealed, it's always for the sake of providing an opportunity for restoration so the greater unity of the church can remain intact. As we move on and we look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11, it tells us this. It says, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, and live in peace. This is a verse I want to close with today. To tie into the last point of being restorative, he's telling us here, strive for full restoration. Again, restoration is always the goal. If you're speaking out of a heart that is not with the intention of restoring, don't speak at all. It's very simple. If you've had this time to reflect, first and foremost, that will indicate the position of your heart and your true intentions. But I want to talk about this part here. It says, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. As we go on and we look at Hebrews, it's a very popular verse a lot of people have talked about in this times in Hebrews. uh, I believe chapter 10, it says, do not forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as the day approaches. Accountability is an important topic. It's something that will pertain to every believer because we often need to be reminded we need an outside individual that has our best intention in mind of holding up the mirror to us to remind us of the standard we said we wanted to uphold. But I believe that as we go through, as we look at this verse here, it's telling us to encourage one another. And I believe that an increase in encouragement will lead to a decrease in confrontation. I believe sometimes we are stingy with our compliments and we're stingy with encouragement. I believe sometimes even if you see somebody that is doing better than you spiritually or in life, our tendency is to be jealous, not to encourage them or praise them. And I think if we were better as believers, as Christians, in encouraging each other, as Hebrews says, all the more, that means that as time goes on, we should be heaping praise and encouragement on each other all the more then we would have to have these difficult conversations less and less. Because when I'm encouraged in my faith, when I have somebody else tell me like, hey man, it looks like God is doing an awesome move in your life right now. I can see the fruit of what God's doing in your life. I can see that. That encourages me to continue on in my relationship with God. But sometimes what will happen is we'll get people saved, we'll get them plugged into a church, and then we leave them to fend for themselves. And then we wonder why they start to drift. But I believe that as we go through this process, if we were more intentional about encouraging one another, these difficult conversations that Nathan is having to have with David would be less frequent. Not that they wouldn't need to happen, but they would be less frequent. And so if you're watching this today, I want to encourage you. Pastor Ed has a message next week, and he's going to start to talk about the importance of community. Listen, we are a body. Christ is coming back for a bride, not brides, plural. You by yourself, you, you, you're, not, you're not living your faith out on your own in an effective way because we see that in isolation, you're not sharpened. Christ is coming back for a bride, and we want to help see you be the most effective individual you can for the kingdom of God. And here at our church, again, one of the best ways to do that is to be plugged in to an e-group. If you're not plugged into an e-group, listen, we have a sign-up already on our website. You can go to it right now. But in the coming weeks ahead, as we start to transition into the fall, there will be opportunities for you to sign up for a group. But it's not just enough to be in a group. As you integrate into that group and you start to build these relationships, is there someone or multiple people in that group that you're willing to give permission to to hold you accountable? You can't hold someone accountable that hasn't given you permission. And that's the key here is that we have to want it for ourselves more than we want to give it to other people. So I want to get ready to close us in a word of prayer. 
As we do, I believe that this series that we've gone through, these three weeks has been a time where God is positioning us as a church to be ready to receive whatever it is that he has for us individually and corporately so we can be used more effectively in our community. There's a lot of people around us that are waiting for us to get it right. Have we taken the time to be reflective, to be relational, and to be restorative. If we start to get these relationships right here in our church with each other, and we start to become sharper and sharper and sharper and more effective and more effective and more effective because we're allowing people to speak into our lives, the world around us has no choice but to take notice. We have to start here. That's the entire purpose of this series is by the end of these three weeks, are you or are we positioned for what God wants to do in us? It is not a a you thing. This is an us thing. It is about the family of God positioning ourselves for what God wants to do in us. So I want to close in a word of prayer. If you missed any part of week one or week two, I encourage you to go back and watch it because I believe much of what we're talking about in this series is important, not just for our church, but the church at large. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done over these three weeks. God, I pray for each and every individual that calls Eastern Assembly home. I pray that this message would cause them to reflect on who do we have in our lives that we've even given permission to hold us accountable. Because I know that accountability will make us more effective. It will cause us to be sharper. It will cause us to be more like you. I pray, Lord God, against the spirit of individualism in our faith that people would have this understanding that it's not just about us but it's about the family of God that we are adopted and born into when we accept you as our heavenly father. We thank you so much for what you're gonna continue to do in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Again, we encourage you to come back next week as Pastor Ed has a message prepared for us at beginning a new series. We love you guys. We can't wait to see you.